If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to the book of Mark. Continuing our series going through the Gospel of Mark, which we started uh, when I got here about a year ago. Uh, We're nearing the end now, uh, but we're also nearing uh, some of the best parts. So Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16 and going through verse 32. Mark 15, starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I claim to be a movie lover. And I am a pastor. But I have a confession to make related to those. Uh, I have never seen The Passion of the Christ. Not once in my entire life. Which is surprising. I mean, it was directed by Mel Gibson, one of the largest and most controversial movie stars of our time. It's the highest-earning R-rated movie of all time in the United States. It made more than any other movie with that rating. So you would think that any movie lover, any movie buff, should have it on his list. It would be something that he's already seen. I mean, when it came out, I was pretty young. I was probably about 10. Uh, So it kind of makes sense that I didn't see it at the time. It was a little bit much for me. But now I like to think that I'm a man. You know, I'm almost 30 years old. Surely there's no one telling me, no, it's too much. You can't handle this. I mean, I pay property taxes. Surely I'm allowed to watch The Passion of the Christ. I've certainly seen movies with more blood in them. I've definitely seen movies with more objectionable content. So it can't be because I'm just too good of a person, just too prudish, too holy to see something so graphic. So there's really not a good reason why I haven't watched it yet. The only one I can kind of think of, if I'm being honest, is that I just don't want to. It just doesn't seem like a fun two hours and seven minutes to me. I mean, it's definitely not like a watch party style movie where like friends are over, we're bored, we decide to put something on. Hey, let's watch The Passion of the Christ. Nothing would really feel appropriate while watching it. No popcorn, no Mountain Dew. I mean, could I watch it wearing sweats? That would feel weird, right? Surely not in one of my Spider-Man t-shirts. Maybe I should dress for a funeral whenever I watch the movie. 
I guess what I'm trying to say is that I haven't watched it because I've never really felt like I was ready to watch it. I've never really felt like I was able to do it in the right frame of mind. Like I was worthy to, to see a depiction of what actually happened to Jesus on the cross. Not that it's kind of word for word. Not that it's a perfect representation. But having not seen it, I don't know. And I have to confess, when I came to this text in our series going through the book of Mark, I felt a lot the same way. This has been one of the hardest sermons for me to write because everything I did, everything I tried, never really felt like I was doing justice to the text. It never really felt like I was giving you the actual sense of what's happening here, being able to give you the fullness of what's happening. So really, rather than try to preach to you a sermon about the meaning of the cross, the magnitude of it, trying to get into the theology of it, of the atonement, anything like that. Let me just try to tell you the story. I pray this morning that if I can give you that story, if you can see the story well enough, then the reality of what happens in this text will be enough for you. The truth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, crucified, will speak for itself. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They had brought him out to be considered for release by the crowd, but rather than releasing him, as we saw last week, they wanted Barabbas freed instead. This Jesus, who Pilate even called the king of the Jews, that's who they wanted crucified. So Pilate had Jesus scourged. He was already flogged. They had used a whip called a cat of nine tails, which had nine long strips of leather coming out of the handle. Within each strip was embedded bone, glass, shards, anything sharp that they might be able to hook into, uh, into the leather, which would also be able to hook into the skin. It was designed to inflict the maximum punishment possible. The people who used it were able to use the whip in such a way that each sharp point would embed deep into the skin before they jerked it back with a flick of the wrist, ripping the flesh away from the bone, away from the muscle, away from the body. And having been scourged, the soldiers led Jesus back into Pilate's palace, and they gathered everyone around, the whole battalion, a mob of soldiers, maybe around 600 men coming together to see the spectacle, to see the plaything that Jesus had become. Bloody and weak, they paraded him before them for their enjoyment. It was almost like a USO show. It had been a hard week for the Roman soldiers during a Jewish feast. The tensions were high, so they decided, let's use this Jesus for our enjoyment, for our amusement, to help ease their minds, to distract them from their duties. They hooted and hollered, cheered and laughed as the God of the universe staggered before them, barely able to stand. And then they decided, hey, let's play dress up. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. He had been charged with treason and sentenced to death because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. So what they did was they dressed him like a king. They took a purple cloak, more likely a raggedy rug or a faded scarlet cape. Something that probably wasn't in the best shape. Maybe had some tattered holes in it. It wasn't quite the perfect color, not quite the royal purple, but it was close enough for the audience to get it, for the audience to understand the costume that they had put on him. It was close enough to call to mind the hilarious contrast between this scrawny Galilean before them and when they had seen Caesar parade in joyous and regal procession before them. 
to make the picture complete, to make sure no one could miss that this was a man who claimed to be a king, they fashioned a crown out of the branches of a nearby shrub. Sure, it had thorns, but this crown wasn't meant to be comfortable. For heavy is the head which wears this crown most of all. They jammed it onto his head, causing the thorns and thistles that were brought about through Adam's rebellion to jam into the scalp, through the skin, to pierce the head that was offered for their payment. So the costume was now complete. Before them stood the king of the Jews, arrayed in splendor, a royal robe and a crooked crown, dripping with blood. And so then they began their little play. Verse 18. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. As he stumbled, surrounded by jeers and taunts, they began to cheer in mockery. Hail, the king of the Jews. All hail, the king of the Jews. They gave him the same greeting they would give Caesar if he were in their presence. What they were doing was pointing out the lunacy and the idea that this man could possibly claim to be a king. That he could possibly claim that he was the Messiah. I mean, what kind of king ends up like this? What kind of king ends up with this kind of treatment? Even the Jews, as poor and pitiful in the soldiers' eyes as they probably were, they surely wouldn't accept a king like this. So they continued their scorn into even more violence. Verse 19. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. They battered him about with a reed. Sharp, stinging pain delivered precisely wherever they wanted. Probably wherever it was going to hurt the most. Where it would be the most degrading. In the face. On his crown. Some even spit on him. That's what we think of you, O king. Others got on their knees before him, bowing in feigned reverence. All hail the king. All hail the king of the Jews. But eventually they grew tired of this little vaudeville production they had started. They took back the cloak. Probably ripping off the fabric they had congealed onto his open wounds. Reopening them in the process. Restarting the blood flow. They gave him back his raggedy clothes. And they took him out to be crucified. Down the path from Pilate's home to the place just outside the city where he was going to die. And die he would. Verse 21. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. The father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. He was supposed to carry his own cross. What he was supposed to carry was likely just the cross beam where his hands were going to be nailed. And we know from the other gospel accounts that they tried to make him and he simply couldn't do it. He wasn't able to carry the weight. Though he was God Almighty, though he was the God of the universe, the mighty God in the flesh, his humanity had grown so weak and wounded. He was so reeling from the loss of blood. So frail from being up all night praying, up all night on trial. Dizzy from the pain, parched from his thirst, that this man just didn't have the strength to carry the heavy wooden beam up that hill. He just didn't have it in him anymore. So the soldiers, knowing the beam had to get up there somehow, compelled a passerby. They grabbed a man from the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross. 
Mark's readers may not have known who he was, but they would remember him as the father of Alexander and Rufus, two men who evidently they would have known. That's why Mark gave the detail. He's, if you want to know what happened, go ask Alexander. Go ask Rufus what happened. Those two men may have even been there that day, but they were around. They were able to be consulted about what happened when Jesus died. Simon was forced to carry the load that Jesus simply could no longer bear. And together, they went up the hill to Golgotha. Verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. We don't know if this place was called Golgotha, the place of a skull, because of its shape or its usage. Maybe it kind of looked like a skull. Maybe it was round on top, had some indentions on the front, maybe some caves, some different erosion that had happened that that made it resemble eye holes, cheekbones. Maybe it was just called the place of a skull because that's where you go to die. Like a pirate ship with a skull and crossbones. When you see it, you know death is near. Maybe it's just where the Romans took people who they were going to kill. But regardless, it was a grim place of death. And this was the place where Jesus of Nazareth would meet his end. And along the way, we see the only act of mercy that Jesus receives in the entire ordeal. Verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This wine mixed with myrrh was meant to dull the pain of the accused. Think of it like morphine on the battlefield, whiskey in the Old West. The crucified were offered one chance to ease their experience of suffering as an act of mercy. And the they in this verse probably wasn't the Romans who had offered him that. I mean, they probably didn't really care about easing the suffering of the people there. They were there to ensure the suffering of the people there. The they in this verse is most likely the the Jewish people who had followed him. These likely leading women in the community offered this service to the condemned as a way of obeying the law of God. They got this idea. They got this principle from Proverbs 31, verses 6 and 7. It says this, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing. And wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty. And remember their misery no more. They offered him this wine mixed with myrrh. This concoction to try to lessen his pain. To try to ease his suffering. To the one who was perishing, they gave the strong drink. To the one who was in bitter distress, they gave the wine. He was supposed to drink and forget his poverty. He was supposed to drink and forget the pain that he was enduring. He was supposed to drink and forget the suffering that he had already had, the trial, the mockery. He was supposed to be able to ease what was happening and to remember his misery no more. To make the end just a little bit easier. To let it come just a little bit faster. To let his experience not be quite so bad. And this Jesus who was offered a drink as he was perishing in bitter distress to forget his misery did not take it. He refused. At every opportunity to back out, Jesus has resolutely refused throughout his entire ministry. Throughout the entire book of Mark, we've seen over and over he has the chance to have an easier way and he says no. When he told his disciples about his impending death, Peter told him to find another way. He said, no, 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 you don't have to die. Don't talk like that, Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross. You're the Messiah. You don't have to do that. And remember what Jesus called him? He said, get behind me, Satan. He rebuked him. He said, no, the cross is the way. 
For me to be the Messiah, for me to be the Son of Man, who you are claiming I am, the cross is the only option, Peter. Jesus had the chance to find another way, and he refused. When he was in the garden praying, he wasn't ultimately praying that he might avoid the cross, but he was finally and ultimately praying that the will of God would be accomplished through the cross. He was going. Let your will be done, Father. Whatever it takes. If it were possible, let this cup pass. But since it's not, I'm going. I'm going anyway. When they seized him, he could have fought back. He could have got away. Peter even had a sword with him. He started chopping off ears. And what did Jesus say? No. Put away your sword. Not like this. They're going to take me. Let it happen. When the Sanhedrin had Jesus on trial and they couldn't find evidence to convict him until he declared the truth to them. That he is the Messiah and son of man who has come to reign and rule over the whole earth. He could have kept his mouth shut. He could have said nothing. And he did right up until the point where he said, yes, I am the son of man. I am the Messiah. You will see me coming on the clouds with glory. That was what they put him on trial for. That was what they ultimately needed to declare him guilty. He gave it to them. He could have got out of it, and he didn't. When Pilate was questioning him, all he had to do again was open his mouth. Pilate wanted to let him off. Pilate knew he was innocent. Pilate didn't like the Jews and said, man, if I can let you off, I want to. Give me a reason. Don't you have an answer for all the things that they're saying against you? And Jesus said nothing. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. He said nothing. All he had to do was open his mouth and he could have been set free. But he mounted no defense. And now, today in this text, when his pain could be lessened through this concoction of wine and myrrh. When it could have been an easier road. When it could have been not quite so hard. He said no. He denied himself that sweet release. To pay for the sins of the world, he had to get the full experience. He had to get the full weight of the pain and decay of sin and death. He had to receive the full wrath of God on himself to make a full atonement for all of his people. While he was able to gladly accept the gift of myrrh from the wise man as a child, he had to deny it now. And so, the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ was crucified. Verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. They crucified him. They took his hands and nailed him into the beam that Simon had carried up the hill for him. The nails were probably sent through the wrist. Not, not quite the hand, not quite the arm, but through the wrist deep into the wood with a thick-gauged nail to make sure that they could bear his weight. First one arm. And then the other. They raised the beam up over and onto the thick wooden stake, which was probably already in place to make the full cross, to make the T. And they took his legs, 
They crossed one over the other and drove one single nail through his two ankles, similar to what they had done with his hands. And so he had been attached to the wood. He had been put on the cross. The work of crucifixion for the, sh- for the soldiers was done. So now they're able to relax a little. They're able to get to the business that they really cared about. Who gets his stuff? They gambled. They cast lots for his clothing, seeing who gets what. Unknowingly fulfilling the scriptures as they did so. Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18 says this. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. These soldiers who were simply looking for free stuff were actually fulfilling the will of God as they did so. They were doing exactly what they were always supposed to do. Exactly what was always going to happen. And Jesus was left without even his clothing to his name. He had absolutely nothing when they crucified him. They ripped his hands open and nailed him to the cross. He opened his hands wide on the cross, giving up everything that he might draw into his arms, not things, but a people for his own possession. That as he released himself, released all worldly possessions, released his body over to death, He received us in return. He received our sin. He bought our lives. He bought everything that he was going to give to his people in that moment. So our noble king revealed his humility in these moments more than maybe any others that we see in his life. Verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And he was and is their king. They didn't acknowledge him as king. They didn't bow to him as king or worship him as king. But he was their king. Whether they knew it or not. Whether they recognized it or not. Whether they wanted to acknowledge it or not. He already was the king. The Romans did these things as mockery. But there will come a day when they will do so in awe and wonder before him. Where they will call him king to his face. Because they are faced with the full reality of that fact. Of that truth. That that's who he is. The king not only of the Jews, but of all people. The king not only of this earth, but the heavens. He was crucified before them. But he wasn't the only one crucified on that day. Verse 26. And with him, they crucified two robbers. One on his right and one on his left. It was a triple crucifixion day. Pilate must have been running a special. It was felon Fridays. Three times the crosses from your Roman bosses. Jesus couldn't even get his own special event. Couldn't even get his own crucifixion. Couldn't even be the only one up there. According to the Romans, not only was he a criminal deserving death, but he was just another criminal deserving death. He was one of three. And these other guys with him, they were actually guilty. They had committed the crimes. They were robbers, maybe even possibly insurrectionists, since the Greek word can mean either. Maybe they were the other ones that were caught and put on trial along with Barabbas in his insurrection. 
Maybe they had been part of that same movement. And while Barabbas got set free, his cronies didn't. Maybe Jesus took Barabbas' place not only on a cross, but on this cross. But regardless of their crime, regardless of what they did, they were guilty, just like Barabbas had been. And yet Jesus, though he was innocent, was treated as if he were guilty. He bore the full punishment, the full wrath of one who had committed the offense, even though he's the only one in all of human history who was completely and totally innocent in every respect. He had never done anything worthy of any kind of punishment. And yet he received this punishment among the guilty. He was treated as guilty for our sake. Though we were guilty, he received our punishment when he was crucified. And yet he was willing, he was unwilling to save himself. Verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The reason people were crucified at Golgotha, the reason they were hung up on a cross, higher than normal, was so that their shame could be made a spectacle. So everyone could come from all around and be able to see who got crucified that day. So there would be a warning, an example to everyone who had possibly considered doing the same crimes that they had done. Passersby, checking out the day's crucifixions, derided him. They were shaking their heads in disbelief and mockery of this Nazarene who claimed to be something special. Oh, big man, Jesus. What was that you said about tearing down the temple, buddy? From where I'm standing, it looks like the temple's doing the same. In fact, if you're going to rebuild it in three days, you better get started. If you can do all that, surely you can also save yourself from the cross, right? I mean, I thought we were supposed to believe that you were the one who was to come. I thought we were supposed to believe everything you said. If any of it's true, prove it. Come on down. I mean, I'd help you, but... A big shot like you surely wouldn't need my help, would you, Jesus? And he could have done exactly what they suggested. He could have stepped down, could have healed his wounds, could have brought down a legion of angels to do his bidding and deliver justice against his captors. He could have toppled the temple with a word and rebuilt it more glorious than before with just a thought. But he was unwilling to do so. He refused the opportunity. Because his purpose wasn't to save himself. His purpose was to save them. The very ones who were deriding him. The very ones who hadn't yet believed that he is who he said he was. Though he could have done whatever he wanted. What he wanted was this. What he wanted was to die in their place. For their sins. So that he might save others. Verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ the king of Israel come down now from the cross. That we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The Sanhedrin who had come out to revel in their supposed victory, even they joined in on the mockery. They patted each other on the back. They jeered. This Jesus could stop the woman with the blood disorder from bleeding, but can he stop his own? Stop your blood, Jesus. He caused the lame to walk, you say. 
Well, let's see if he can walk on out of this. Those who are well have no need of a physician. So he said, well, who's not well now? Jesus, you claim to have saved others. So now save yourself. I mean, you're supposed to be the Christ, right? You're supposed to be the Messiah, the son of man who's going to come in glory. You're supposed to be the king of Israel, right? Tell you what, I'll believe you if you hop down. Save yourself. Then I'll believe the words you say. But he didn't. He couldn't if he was going to save others. For Jesus, it's an either or, not a both and. Either he saves himself and his people suffer. Or he suffers and we're saved. And he chose the suffering. He chose to die. He chose to give himself up that he might redeem to himself people just like us. People just like them. Though our sins were a scarlet, he decided to take them to himself that he might make us white as snow. That's why he did it. He chose death. The Christ, the King of Israel, stayed up on the cross that we might see and believe. He didn't come down that we might see and believe. He stayed up that we might see and believe. That when we see him, we know our sins have been paid for. Had he come down, no atonement would have been accomplished. No sins would have been able to be wiped away. Had he come down, he may have saved his earthly life, but he wouldn't have saved us. So he stayed. He paid for the sin. He said, no, I'm not coming down. I'm staying here. Look upon me and believe. See these wounds in my side and know that they were yours. Know that these stripes are through which you have been healed. This was always the plan of Jesus. Isaiah 53, which would come back and over and over again to throughout the entire book of Mark, says this. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Christ, the son of God, very God from very God, light from light, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though he was equal with God, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, as a thing to be held onto, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Being found in sinful flesh, he was able to pay for sin. He took our griefs and he carried our sorrows. We reviled him. We saw him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. We said, how could you possibly pay for my sin? You're dying. But the piercings that he endured, the death that he died, were to pay for our transgressions. When his body was crushed under the weight of our sin, it was for our iniquities. His chastisement brought us peace, and his wounds are what heals us. The blood of Christ is sufficient to buy for himself a people. It's sufficient to pay for every sin that you have ever committed. It's precious. It's innocent. It's that of the Lamb of God atoning in our place. 
but it was poured out for you and in your place. But that blood is only useful for you if it's applied to you. Jesus dying for the sins of his people doesn't help you if you're not one of his people. And if that's you today, if you hear those words and think, you know what, I know he died, but I don't know that I realized he did it for me. I didn't realize it was my sin that caused him to die. I didn't realize when he was paying for sins, he was paying even for mine, even for that sin. The worst thing you've ever done. He knew that it would happen. He wasn't surprised by it. And he died anyway. But it's only useful for you. It's only effective for you if it's applied to you. So if that's you today, let me encourage you, become one of his people. Become one for whom he died. Repent and believe. You don't become a Christian. You don't get his blood applied to you by you simply just being a good person. You don't get the blood of Jesus to cover your sins by you earning it. You didn't earn it. You couldn't earn it. What you do is you receive salvation from God by the Holy Spirit when you repent and believe. It's by grace through faith. You put your whole belief, your whole faith, your whole hope and trust in Jesus Christ that he is God, that he came in the flesh. He was perfect. He lived the life that you could not live and yet died in your place as a payment for your sins, the death that you deserve to die before rising again to defeat sin and death, rising again to win a new life for his people, for you. And then you repent of your sin. You resolve to no longer live your life doing whatever pleases you, but rather to do whatever pleases him. And that's not something that you're paying back. It's not like he gave you an invoice and said, okay, I paid for it. Better get to work, buddy. He showed you a bill that said paid in full. So now as a good and right response to that payment, you no longer live in your sin. You're not earning back what he has already bought for you. You're giving him that which he deserves, your life, your praise, whatever honor and glory you are able to give. It's the proper response to the salvation that he has won for you. And if you, right now, today, will repent and believe in this good news, this gospel of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, who will not break you, who will give you peace, who will help you believe, and through his work on the cross and in the resurrection, is the Savior, then that blood that he shed will wash you clean. Whatever sins you've done no longer matter in the eyes of God. When he looks at you and your sins, he sees Christ and his payment. He sees a son, a daughter of the king, a child of God, who he loves dearly, who he loved enough to die for who he loved enough to send his one and only son to die this kind of death, this kind of pain, this kind of suffering, this kind of mockery, that he might redeem for himself a people just like you. That's why Jesus endured what he did. So won't you follow him today? 
won't today be the day that you repent and believe? Maybe you already have. Won't today be another day that you repent and believe? That you continue to repent? That you continue to believe? Not that you have to redo it, but that you continue on in it. And if that's never been true for you, let this be the day. The first day. Won't you repent and believe today? Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the promise that we see in this text. That through the pain, through the suffering, you've atoned for our sin. You've done that which we could not do for ourselves. You've loved us to the end. You've loved us to the death. But even more so, as we'll see in the next few texts in the book of Mark, you loved us to the life. That this isn't where Mark ends with the crucifixion, but it continues on to the resurrection. Let us trust that even when it looks like you've lost, it's in that moment that we know you've won. Thank you for the blood. Let us repent and believe today and every day. Let us continue a life of repentance which is proper to the life of a Christian. Let us continue on and believe, growing in the knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us. That we don't move on past this truth of your gospel, but that we continue into it. We press on and await the day when we will be resurrected just as you were. We love you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.